Hey, it's Charlie. Thanks for listening to the Encouragers United podcast. In a world that is becoming increasingly sad, depressed, and hopeless, individuals with great hope are needed now more than ever. These inspirational leaders come in the form of teachers, pastors, coaches, and mentors. They possess a deep and abiding faith, an enthusiastic hope, and a passion to build others up. We are the encouragers, and these are our stories. We live in a world that is restless. Restless. Everywhere we see it. I've I've felt it. I know you felt it. The Centers for Disease Control, CDC, we've heard that term in the last several years. They have done research that reveals that at least one-third of all of Americans, 33% of us, one out of three, we don't get the recommended amount of sleep that our bodies need. We're restless. We can't sleep. We're anxious. We're fearful. And even within that study, 50% of Americans are feeling isolated and lonely. We're restless. We've talked about it here in the past. You've heard me say, historically, we have this hole inside us, this hole inside our souls. And if you don't ever deal with that hole, we've got ramifications of that problem, of that brokenness, of that sin, that, that unwholeness in your heart. But it's a God-shaped hole, isn't it? It's a God-shaped hole. And until we find the peace that fits that hole, we deal with our restlessness. Today I want to talk to you out of Ruth chapter 3 about rest. About rest. We're going to talk about resting in God. Resting in God. That there is a risk involved with resting in God. But there, oh, there is a beautiful reward because God is so reliable. So just a review here. Back in the chapters 1 and 2 of this wonderful book of Ruth, we've seen two big, heavy, theological kind of concepts, right? If you remember back to the first week, chapter 1, hesed. That's this Hebrew word for a godlike love, a love that comes loyalty, faithfulness. It's a beautiful love that this hesed, this Hebrew word, describes. And we saw that displayed, at least first, in the way that Ruth was faithful to Naomi. They'd gone through tragedy. You can read about that in chapter 1. But Ruth says, no, I love you. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to go where you go. I'll stay where you stay. Your God is going to be my God, and your people will be my people. Wow. Beautiful display. Chapter 2, we saw that play back out. Boaz, our man of noble character, takes care of Ruth and Naomi. And that is indeed a form of hesed love. We're going to see that permeate throughout the next two chapters as well. But a second concept that we talked about, if you remember, is God's providence. His providence. His, his interaction with creation. That the joke was that he just didn't wind this thing up and set it free. No, he's intimately and personally involved with us, with creation. His providence is displayed throughout this story. You may remember uh, the end of the famine draws Naomi back to Bethlehem. Ruth just happens to be gleaning in a field that is owned by Boaz. And Boaz just 
happens to be a relative of the deceased Naomi's husband's Elimelech. Happenstance? I think not. And today we're going to discuss a third very powerful concept. It's rest. So we're resting in God, but there's a risk to that. Let's uh, turn to Ruth here and just start right there in verse 1 of chapter 3. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. If you remember last time we were together, we ended the story with a six, to, six or seven weeks of barley harvest. Maybe a bit longer. Ruth had been working in the fields of Boaz, probably providing a great deal of food for the two of them, which was a wonderful blessing. But at this point, Naomi is seeking the rest, the rest of her daughter-in-law. And the NIV here translates this, I must find you a home. But actually, some of you may be having, uh, in reading the ESV, the English Standard Version, watch, look at this. My daughter, I should, should I not seek rest for you? And actually, some translators would tell you this is a little bit more proper because the word we're going to obviously focus on is rest. What does that really mean for her to seek rest? Naomi is seeking the safety and the rest for Ruth. One of the things that I want you to, to kind of think about is that Naomi is actually turned a corner here. This is a powerful part of the commentary on this part of Scripture. It's, a, it's an indicator that she's healing. She's turned a corner. If you remember, she came back from Moab desolate. She was beat down. In fact, if you go back to the translations there, God did me wrong. That's the literal translation of what she was saying. God's hand was against me. God did me wrong. And I'm bitter. I'm depressed. She was in a dark night of her soul. That's what many would say. You've been there, perhaps. But this is an indicator that she's starting to heal. Because I want you to think about this. She's actually seeking the benefit, the blessing of someone else. And she's not just going to ask or wish for that blessing. She's going to make a way for that to happen. You see, Naomi is significantly older than Ruth, obviously. She realizes that if she dies in this current state, Ruth would really basically have nothing and no one. There's no Israelite inheritance for her right now. She would have no home, no prospects. She probably would be forced to go back to Moab to her home. That's the best that we could hope for Ruth at this time. Just a little verse like this. But Ruth is the beneficiary of Naomi's healing because she says, I got to find you rest. And you know what this is? It's another Hebrew word. It's Manoah. Manoah. That's how you would say that. And it's simply translated rest or a safe place. That's why I think the NIV translator said, I got to find you a home. Home is a safe place. That's another way to put it into English, right? But I need you to think about this word as we see this story in chapter 3 play out. Because there's risk in this rest. And there's risk in that rest for you and I today. There's risk. We're going to see how that plays out for Ruth here. This is still Naomi speaking, but look at verse 2. Now Boaz, with whose women you've been working, is a relative of ours. And tonight... He'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. And just when we see Naomi start to reveal where Ruth might find that rest, I want you to see that she calls her ours. Now, English people would tell you that that is a first-person plural pronoun, ours. 
What is she saying to Ruth? She's functionally saying, number one, Ruth, you're one of us. You're a part of our family. You're an Israelite. And Boaz is a relative of ours. I think that's notable. Naomi is getting better. Her faith has been renewed by seeing the providential work of God in her own life, and now she's able to stay in her home. She's able to eat well. She's taken care of because of the kindness, the Hesed love of Boaz. And she knows, though, that the future is still yet not secure. Ruth might be left alone. And so Naomi is playing the Jewish lady matchmaker, isn't she? She finds a man of good character and a woman of fine character. Why not just put these two together? That first person plural pronoun. She calls Ruth an outright Israelite, and now she has a future. In verse 3, we're going to see the start of this counsel that Ruth is going to receive from Naomi, the older, wiser, culturally literate mother-in-law. And this is what she tells Ruth to do. Carefully study this with me. Wash up. Put some perfume on. Put on your best clothes. And go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. Verse 4. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and go and uncover his feet. And he'll tell you what to do next. (laughs) Okay. The plan has been set. Really? Now, you and I, this is, you know, lost on us, right? The Middle East had many cultures and customs that we are not familiar with. Naomi's familiar with them, though. First, just a word about threshing. Somebody tempted me. Because whoever did this, did you reveal yourself? Who brought this? Matt's just going, please don't. Please don't. You know know what I'm trying to do, right? I'm going to demonstrate how we thresh. No. Should I do that? Who knows what threshing is? Yeah, you'll know what threshing is. I'm not going to do it. Matt would make me up here with the vacuum. I've already made kind of a mess anyway. Fell off the table. Threshing is where we extract the grain, the good part, the edible part, from the chaff, from the other stuff, the husk, the, the uh, stalk, and all of that stuff. So they beat it. Beat it, beat it, beat it, beat it, beat it. And then throw the group of stuff up in the air. The lighter chaff is blown out of the way. The heavier grain falls. That's how we separate it. And so lots of Bible scholars would say, number one, why is Boaz doing this himself? There's lots of speculation on that. All by himself with no workers at night. So there's lots of speculation. You can talk to me about it later. If you have any theories, you can email them to me and we'll have a a great discussion about this. But nonetheless, Naomi knows that he's going to be alone because there's lots of work to do. But he's going to appreciate that work. He's going to eat and drink, have dinner. (sighs) He's going to rest. He's probably going to stay right there with the grain. Some believe to guard it. Some believe to praise God and thank God for the wonderful harvest that he's got. Some people just love to lay in the grain. Who knows? We don't know. But Boaz is the owner. He can do whatever he wants, right? But Naomi instructs Ruth to go to him when he's sleeping and to lay at his feet, uncovering his feet. It's a statement. It's a symbol. It's a custom. And this is outstanding. Look at verse 5. I'll do whatever you say. Really? Really? Because I'm sitting in my office this week going, Ruth, come on now. Don't you have any questions? Are there any follow-up questions that you might have? Like, okay, hold on a second. What if he he gets mad at me? I I think this is kind of forward, right? I'm 
I'm kind of coming to him. What if he gets mad at me? What if he dismisses me? My goodness, what if he hurts me? What will people think? Hmm. That's a question that came to my mind. How about you? We're people of noble character. I want to be above board here. I'm not going to approach a bachelor at night as a single woman. She doesn't question Naomi. I'm going to do whatever you say. That's trust. That's trust right there, right? Think of the relationship these, these two have. That's awesome. It's beautiful. I'll do whatever you say. Thus, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. She goes in faith. We see Naomi's plan played out here. She lays down at the end of the heap of grain. He's probably sleeping. She approaches him. Oh, his belly's full. He's content. See, that was cool. She said, wait until after he's done eating and drinking. (laughs) He'll be in a good mood, right? Maybe. So she went down. And Ruth approaches Boaz and carries out this plan. And I love this book. Don't you just love this book? God is really using it to bring it to life in our lives. Like many other stories in Scripture, this is one of those points where you go, what's going to happen? And like any good drama that you're watching on TV, this is where you get the commercial break. Yeah, like 10 minutes of them. Come on, what's going to happen? Right? The story is full of imagery and foreshadowing and inferences to, to God's love and His providence and other places and times in Scripture. Perhaps something has come to your minds like it did mine this week. Does your mind travel to any other stories where perhaps a young woman approaches a man of noble character and enters where she might not be invited and... uh, Hello? It's Jesus and the Mary. the, The Mary interaction, right? That's John 12. He's reclined after dinner, eating and drinking. She comes in, goes right to his feet. Expensive perfume, dumps it on his feet, anointing him and worshiping him and loving him. That's John 12. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among them. The great story involving Lazarus, this is after that. He's sitting there eating with him. Mary took a pint of pure nard, expensive perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. What a beautiful picture. Yes, yes, Ruth is basically doing the same thing. That's where the custom has come from. In this context, she is proposing her love and her loyalty and a business transaction. That's exactly what's going on here. She's offering herself. She's putting herself out there as a risk. She's showing herself at Boaz's feet. And brothers and sisters, we have the offer right in front of us this morning to find rest in Jesus. We're going to talk about that by the end. Listen, you were invited to rest with Christ, to avoid eternal judgment, to have a friend that loves us. And just like Ruth, we risk it all to approach Jesus. This is what this is about. This is what we did this morning. I hope you can develop that practice to to approach Jesus as our intimate friend. What is the risk, though? I mean, the risk here for Ruth is that he's going to say no. Like, oh, sorry. And man, everything is lost at that point. 
No, I, I'm sorry. I, I just kind of want to be friends. Really? All of this stuff, all of what we've read, the providence of everything, all the way going up to it. And he says, no. Yeah, that's a risk. That's a risk. What about the risk for you and me? Because we walk in here each week at various levels of focus <laughs> with distractions and things on our minds and hearts. But we authentically come and we sing to the ceiling and we say, God, please accept me. God, be with me. Help me. I need you way more than you need me. I'm an alien and a foreigner. I'm broken. I just eat whatever it is that you let me gather up in your kingdom. And that's a risk. But listen, it isn't a risk because we believe God would reject us. Like, oh, sorry. Like some of you called me Lord, Lord, but I don't even know who you are. Yeah, you ever read that passage? Sorry, I'm on a tangent. That passage scares me. That kind of shakes me up. At the end times, Jesus is going to say, there are some, yeah, you, you called me Lord, Lord, but I don't know you. I don't know who you are. And they'd say, Lord, we did all these good things in your name. We helped people. We did even miracles. We saw you. When, hey, sorry, sorry. Be gone. You, you, you're not, I don't know who you are. Lord, that, that, that's uh, like, uh, that's churning here. Well, what, 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 what's with that, Lord? How could I go through my life and call you Lord, Lord, and we come to the end of it, and I, you don't even know who I am? What's the block? I think that block might be that we still reserved back a little bit of our dignity. We reserved back a little bit of our pride. We reserved back a little bit, perhaps, of our own selfishness. We reserved back something. In our sinful brokenness, God says, I don't know that. I, I don't know you. I don't even know who you are. Jesus encourages us, though, when we bring it all, when we hang it all out there, because that's what Ruth is doing here, right? Like, she has no other choices, no other options, no other future, no other prospects. This is it. All in, right? We do that with Jesus. We do that in a daily life. We do that. In our daily life with Jesus, walking with Him and submitting to Him everything in holy worship, every moment of our lives, that's weird. That's weird. People aren't going to understand that. People aren't going to understand our love for our Lord that would cause us to take everything that we have, this powerful picture of nard. It was worth a year's wage. Remember that? Crack that baby open and pour it out on my Lord because He's worth every drop of it. The world is not going to understand that. But Jesus says, listen, if the world hates you, don't worry about it. Because it hated me first. And if you belong to the world, you would love it as your own. It would love you. The world would love you. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. And I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. You've got to face it every day. I need to face it every day. We need to walk around like living as the Christian life. And people are going to go, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. Right? We've all lived it. We've been there in our businesses. We've been there in our family relationships. We've been there in our neighborhoods. We've been talking to people. And they go, Lord, you're calling me to minister to people, to give, to be generous, to love, to, to put it all out there. But it doesn't make sense in the world. And so you got a choice, just like Ruth did. Okay, so try to make those connections here. Keep that in your mind. Because I want you to know that when you do that, you're resting in God. 
That's resting in this risk. But I want you to see the great reward that Ruth finds and you and I find. Verse 8, pick it up here. Oh, commercial's over. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Well, who? Who are you? He asked. I'm Ruth. I'm your servant. Oh, boy. Another one of those cultural custom, custom things, right? Spread the corner of your garment over me since you're the guardian redeemer of our family. That's my action pack. Some guys preach their whole message just in that one verse. Boaz awakens and finds Ruth at his feet with his feet uncovered. The message is sent. Okay? Message received. But she has to remind him one more time. Groggy's waking up. I don't know about you. What? What's going on? Who are you? She reminds him. Oh, my goodness, what a beautiful, beautiful phrase. We don't have time to pile into it today. Do you realize this was written a thousand years earlier than when we really figure it out? Like this woman's great-grandson is going to write those same words. I'll show them to you in a minute. In our terms, she's saying, hey, take that blanket, take your cloak, and can I get up underneath there too? Like, okay, but that's figurative. It's symbolic. It's like, I want to be under your wing. I want to be your wing person. Oh, my goodness. And that is an instant this guy has to respond. Like, what do you think is going through his mind? He's been watching this gal for up to two months. She's really hard worker. She's a person of noble character. She's faithful to Naomi. She's, she's, man, I think she was probably very beautiful, too. Why not? This is his response. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Okay, hold on a second here. Check your scriptures again. Check your scriptures. Who's speaking these words? You see the quote? She's saying this, but she's quoting him from what he said to her back in chapter 2. Look at it. That's Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. This is what she's referring back to. She says, hey, I want to come under your wing. But these are the words that he said to her for her loyalty to Naomi. You follow it? It's beautiful. She uses his same words to say, you're the blessing, bud. You prayed these words over me because I needed to come under the Lord's refuge, under the Lord's wing. Guess whose wing it is? It's him. He's the object of God's blessing in her life. And say, Boaz, hey, you prayed that I might come under God's protection and God's love and his wing, right? Well, guess what, buddy boy? Can I come under your wing? Because you're it. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the story. And again, much kudos to Samuel. Samuel probably wrote this, by the way. And it's brilliant if you study it closely enough. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant piece of artwork. And as I said, three generations later, King David will write these words. My great-grandmother understood this. Psalm 91.4, he will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings, you're going to find rest, refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. That's King David. Ruth basically proposes to Boaz, reminding him that he is the family redeemer. Okay, so again, big big Bible kind of concept here, but historically that comes from, you guessed it, Deuteronomy. 
God's health and safety manual for life on earth. And it basically comes out of chapter 25 in Deuteronomy. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her to fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This was a very nationalistic, uh, albeit private matter for the nation of Israel. Okay, We're not applying this stuff today, Okay, but this is where this is rooted in. And the word brother right there is not just like brothers, like we, we, we had the same mom and the same dad. Like brothers means relative, and that's where this works out for us as Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. So let's keep moving here. Verses 10 and 11 are Bo- is Boaz's response. The flattered bachelor. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you've showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do exactly what you ask. And all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. <laughs> Once again, there's so much packed into this. You see, she's, she's presented herself. I want to be with you. Now again, some would contend that it's business. You read it the way the Holy Spirit teaches you. It's business. I got a future with you. And you're going to follow your own people's laws from Deuteronomy. And you're going to help me out with that, right? But these words are the ones that sort of turn us towards the romantic side of this. There is another portion of this that say, you know what? It's business, but man, I'm falling in love with you. It's okay. That's what God does. You've not run after younger men. You could have done whatever. You could have gone and gotten somebody that, you know, stronger, bigger, faster, whatever. But you didn't. You've come after me. Oh, that's a great kindness to me. His language here, daughter, is still very honoring, right? You're one of us. Oh, daughter, you've been more kind to me than you will even know. Who knows what Boaz's situation is? And again, I, don't try, I try not to do this very much, but we can speculate. The guy's a bachelor. He's got lots of money. He's got wealth. He's got land. He's got workers. He's got, what doesn't he have? He doesn't have a wife, and we don't know why. So what a blessing this could have been to him. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, there's so much here. Do you realize who Boaz's mother is? You were waiting for me to bring it up, didn't you? Because some of you may not read it. It's okay. It's all right. I want you to think about, even if Boaz was born after she was... Have you read your Bible? Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh my goodness. Boaz's mother is a woman named Rahab. Rahab! Yeah, the Rahab. The prostitute Rahab. Okay, let me get my head around this, Lord. This guy grows up, and it's most likely after she was free of her tragic life, prior to marrying Salmon, or Salmon, however you prefer to, this is Matthew 1.5. We studied this way back. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. He just had to throw that in there, didn't he? Yeah, that Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed. We're going to talk about that next week. 
whose mother was Ruth, and Ovid, the father of Jesse, with the comma, and David, and down the line to Jesus. It's a beautiful story. Boaz is blessed by Ruth's gesture, and he agrees that they will indeed get married. I'm not going to spend too much time on it at the end of this section. There's a little bit of a snafu legally here. We're going to talk about that next week. But I'm here to tell you, we can rest in God today because he's reliable. Sure, there's risk. But that reward, that reward is like nothing that you've ever experienced. When our Lord looks at us and says, yes, come on in under my wing. What a beautiful thought. What a beautiful thought. Here's that little snafu. It's 12 and 13. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of your family, there is another who's more closely related. Basically, he's closer to Elimelech than I am. Dun, dun, dun. Uh Uh-oh. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian, then he'll do it. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as God, as the Lord lives, I'll do it. That's a beautiful promise. So stay here until the morning. You're taken care of, Ruth. You're taken care of. I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of. Boaz knows of another family member who is a closer cousin, let's say. He could also, in fact, be the Redeemer. And so we'll talk about that next week. But Boaz maintains his purity. He maintains his reputation. And he promises to resolve this issue immediately. And I want you to know that God is indeed reliable and faithful to do just that for us. You'll read in the other parts of this story, the end of the chapter here, that Boaz is Boaz. He sends her home with a big pile of grain. In essence, to remind Naomi that she is no longer empty. She may have come to back to Bethlehem empty, but she is full. 